So a little context, Jesus is not being mean to the tree. It's sometime between mid-March and mid-April. There should not be figs on the tree. That's why Mark says it's not the season for figs. Uh, figs show up in June. This is most likely, this is some of what you think, what I think. When I think barren, that's what I think, a tree in the winter. It was actually probably more like this. That next slide, please. It's a tree that's already got leaves on it. And what Jesus was looking for when he went up to the tree were, were these things. These little green figs, they were not edible, but they were evidence that the tree was actually going to produce fruit. So when Jesus goes up to the tree, he's looking for those things. It has leaves on it. These, the, these uh, green figs show up before the, before the leaves. They're called early figs. They would appear on the tree before the leaves, and he's going to look for those, and they're not there. And so this curse that he puts on the tree is based on the fact that the tree looks like it's healthy and producing figs, which is what a fig tree should do, and it's not. It's deceptive, which uh, leads right into this next section. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. So this is, we, we mentioned last week, this is Passover. It's the largest of the three festivals. There's at least 200,000 extra people in Jerusalem, and they're all pushing towards the temple. There's a very prescribed uh, ritual that these guys would have to go through, which included uh, sacrifices. And so outside the temple area on the Mount of Olives, there were four markets that had been there historically where people could buy ritually pure animals and then take them in to sacrifice. It was a needed service because these guys didn't have to bring their animals from whatever distance it was that they were traveling. And so they could buy animals there. But in 30 AD, three years before this story that we read, Caiaphas, who was a high priest, set up um, a market in the court of the Gentiles. Let me show you this. Let's see that next picture, Scott. Please. So this is the temple. Everything you see here was off limits to the Gentiles. You see that little bitty wall that goes around? It's about four feet high. Gentiles were not allowed to cross that. Gentiles, that's any non-Jew, foreigners, us, we would not be allowed to cross that um, fence. We show the next one, Scott. So this is a drawn-out picture. You see that little wall again. So the court of the Gentiles is on the left side of that little four-foot wall. Gentiles, again, weren't allowed to cross that, and Caiaphas had set up a market in that area. That's the only place Gentiles could go. They weren't allowed, again, to push in any closer to the temple. They had to stay outside, and three years prior, Caiaphas set up a market just because he wanted to make money. There were already four other ones that were plenty sufficient. They had been working well for years, but he didn't get a cut of it. It was run by a different group, and so he set this market up, which allowed him to take a cut. This idea of the money changers, what would happen then, it, you had to give a temple tax. It's in Exodus, I think, 30, how much you had to pay. It was a very particular currency. And so people who came from other cities would have to trade their currency, exchange their currency for this local currency in order to pay the tax. And the money changers were allowed to charge a very, very minimal fee for turning the money over. And most likely what was happening was they had jacked the fee up some. So that's kind of the scene here. This is Isaiah 56. Um, Excuse me, I think it's 58, actually. No, it is 56. So when he says house of prayer, this is what the guys would have heard. 
This is Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Let no foreigner, let no Gentile, who has bound himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let's skip down to verse 6. The Lord says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So that's the picture here. That's what God intended for the temple to be. So Jews had to come. If you were a Jew, you had to show up during this week, and there was stuff you had to do. Gentiles, no. You, you didn't have to come. If you did come, the closest you could get was this court of the Gentiles. Theoretically, God's desire was this temple would be a place where seekers, people who are seeking him in this court of the Gentiles, again, thinking, think about us, where many of you are followers of Jesus. So think of someone who's seeking him. You're introduced to them. You're interacting with them on some level. That's the picture here in this court of the Gentiles. Rather than making it easy for these guys to connect with the Lord, rather than encouraging them in their seeking, you set up a flea market in the only place that they can go. And you're selling cows, and you're selling sheep, and you're selling pigeons, and you're selling doves, and all of that stuff needs to be sold, but you, it's, they can get it just down the street. This one area where they can actually pray, where, that they can actually connect with God. The thinking is God lives in this, he lives in that wall. Inside that wall, that's where God is. So the one place the Gentiles can actually connect with your God, what you're doing as religious leaders is you're making money off of them. You're taking advantage of the fact that they're coming and that they're seeking. They can't go any farther, so you've got a captive audience there, and you're fleecing them. So Jesus is obviously frustrated by that. You can go back and read Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, if you want the background on the den of robbers, but the, the overall gist is they have this false sense of security. Because we've got this temple, God lives in this temple, we're okay, I can do whatever I want. I can, he talks about killing people, adultery, worshiping other gods, stealing, all kinds of stuff. Jeremiah says, y'all think you can do all of that stuff, but then you can come and say, this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple, and everything's going to be okay. Again, it's this false sense of security, and you see that here with the religious leaders of Jesus' time. They thought they could do whatever they want, because as long as this temple is here, that means God is okay with them and that they're going to be just fine. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. This seems like a little bit of a disconnect. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. So the next morning, they walk by the tree. It's withered and died, and Peter says, look, you did that. That's called a prophetic sign. If you look in the ministry of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, they were the three major Old Testament prophets. Every one of them did this. It's, it's acting out something that God is going to do. So the issue here, this tree in the temple, they're parallels. And what Jesus is saying is what I did to that tree, God is going to do to the temple. In 70 AD, the whole thing gets destroyed because it has leaves but no fruit. It appears to be healthy. It appears to be 
functioning the way it was supposed to, but it's not. It's like a fig tree that has leaves without any figs. Then it's not doing what a fig tree should do. Fig trees produce figs. If not, they're worthless. And the same thing is true of this temple. This temple should be inviting people in. It should be encouraging those who are seeking the Lord. It's not doing that. It looks great from the outside. You saw the, that, there's a guy in England. He spent 30,000 hours doing this one to 100 scale model of the temple. That's what that picture was. If you've got some spare time, you can get started on your own as well. So it was magnificent, absolutely wonderful, and it was totally deceptive because it didn't accomplish the purposes that God desired for it to accomplish. And so just like this fig tree withered for not producing figs, this temple is going to be destroyed because it's not helping people seek the Lord. And then you have this whole thing about faith and prayer and forgiveness, and it seems, again, like a bit of a disconnect from everything that's just happened. But I think what's going on, we've got this Old Testament structure, this temple that Jesus says it's, it's going down, and he's saying to his disciples, the new Israel that he's going to reconstitute, this is what I want for you. I don't want this picture of this withered fig tree, I don't want that to happen to you. The way you cultivate fruit, fruitfulness in your life, prayer, faith, and grace. And we'll look at that here in a second. So I think the, the parallels for us, the temple obviously is destroyed. In the New Testament, we're called the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says we corporately are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says individually each of us is the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the temple, this physical building, was where God was said to live if I can use that word kind of in quotes. We all know God can't be confined to a space. The Jews knew God couldn't be confined to some physical space, but they built this temple, and God said, it's going to be my dwelling. If you go back and look, when Solomon built the first temple, there's this cloud that descends upon it that's supposed to be, that, that represents the presence of God. And in Ezekiel, the cloud lifts and moves away from the temple, which is a signal that God has left Judah at that point and Israel at that point. So, this, that physical building that you just saw in, in, encased in those fences, that's where God lives on the earth. The same thing, that's us now. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives within us individually and collectively. And just like God expected the temple in the Old Testament to function in a particular way, he expects the same thing from us. He was looking for fruitfulness from this temple system, and he's looking for fruitfulness from us, and it's the same fruit that he's looking for. This temple, again, this is where, if this is where God lives, then all of you who are kind of on the inside, you Jews, you need to be encouraging people who are on the outside. You need to be, those who are seeking, you need to be encouraging them to seek more. You need to be encouraging them in this discovery of who God is, and it's the same thing that's true for us. This isn't about going door to door. It's not about getting a bullhorn on the square. You don't have to drag a cross down Whitlock Avenue for everybody to see. It's none of that. It's, but there is an expectation from the Lord that we will bear fruit. This is John 15. I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So that's, again, kind of this evidence that we're followers of him. Down to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. We're jumping ahead a bit, but you see the connection there. And 
Mark, Jesus says, ask for anything, and if you believe, you're going to have it. And he says here in John, and the context there, it's not selfish, and it's not glitz and glamour. It's in the context of mission. You're bearing, I've appointed you to bear fruit as you're blessing other people. And in the midst of that, you ask for what you need, and I'm going to give it to you. It's not about more cars or a bigger house. or that, That's not in view at all. What's in view is in, this, in the context of mission. As you're bearing fruit, you ask for what you need, and you're going to get it, whether it's for you or for other people. Those things are yours. So that's, again, that's a jumping ahead a bit, but I wanted you all to see that. So we're the temple. Jesus expects us to bear fruit. But that's not um, an invitation to perform. Think of the difference between having a baby and building a house. In both cases, you've produced something, but it's, the, the work is radically different. Now, obviously, I'm not a woman, so no, no rocks. A baby being formed in your womb is not work, right? <laughs> it's natural. You're not getting up every morning saying, I got to I gotta form some arms today. We're, you know, you're not doing that. Today it's leg day, and you, it's just happening in you, right? You might get sick, you get tired, all of those things, but you're not actually putting the pe- It's not Mr. Potato Head, right? Y'all are with me. Building a house is different. You are actually putting... That is Lincoln Logs. You're putting all of the pieces together for this house. In both cases, after nine months, you've got something. There's a product. You've produced fruit, you could say. But the work that went, it was two different kinds of work. I don't think there are very many, there's not much overlap or parallel between those two types of producing or bearing fruit. I want you to think much more in terms of the baby world than the building house world as we talk about producing fruit. It's not an invitation to go make something, to go create something, to go do something. Again, many of you are gardeners. You have gardens in your backyard. Your tomato plants right now, are they're not sweating the fact that they're supposed to produce tomatoes. That's not pressure for them. They don't get up in the morning and say, man, we gotta, we got to make this happen today. That's not, they don't do that. It's just natural. You've got them in good soil. The plants are healthy. They're going to produce tomatoes. And I think that's the same picture for us. If, if, if the conditions are right, we're going to produce fruit. This is John 15, 5. It says, if a man remains in me, that's in Jesus, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. That's a statement of fact. That's reality. There's no, nothing extra involved. If we stay connected to him, that's kind of, again, jumping ahead a bit, that's where prayer comes in. Prayer is a primary way that we stay connected to God. If we, were, if we remain, abide in Jesus, we're going to produce fruit, and you're not going to have to work that hard. Again, just like this picture of a mom as, she's, as this baby is being formed in her womb. This is Matthew 7. Many of you have heard this before. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Listen to this verse. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, 
you will recognize them. Again, the, the picture there from Jesus is it's, it's what's coming out of your heart. The fruit is the result of what is already in your heart. I think it's in Matthew 12, 33. He expands on that and talks about the good man. He talks about if a, tree is, if a tree is not good, you can make it good, and then the fruit will be good. And if a tree is bad, the fruit's going to be bad because we bring out of our hearts the good or the bad things that are stored within them. Sometimes we focus on the symptoms, the fruit, what we produced. And what Jesus is saying is look, a, look deeper. Look at your heart. Rather than snapping your wrist with a rubber band every time you lose your temper, that's okay. That's managing fruit, managing symptoms. Let's look at your heart and figure out why you're impatient in the first place. If your heart is the wellspring of life, which the Bible says it is, again, statement of reality, then if it's polluted water, then that's, what, that's what's going to come out. So if we clean up the spring so that it's fresh water, then that's what's going to come out. That's this, this picture of fruit. Again, I don't want you to feel pressure to go perform and to go do anything. It, no, none at all. You stay connected to Jesus, and you're going to produce fruit. Uh, we've talked before the book Integrity by a guy named Henry Cloud. It's six or seven or eight years old. He talks about the wake. You just think that of your trail, what you leave behind. A boat on the water, that's the picture there of a wake. That's, kind of, that's the image I want you to have of fruit. It's not this stuff that you're making that's external to you. It's what you leave behind as you walk through life. When you turn around and look over your shoulder, what, what's behind you? That's the fruit that I think Jesus is talking about here. Again, it's the stuff that springs out of you. You can either say naturally or supernaturally, however you want to phrase that, but you get the picture of what I'm talking about. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And as someone who's connected to Him, that stuff should not only, you should not only see that in your own personal life in terms of attributes and characteristics, that should be stuff that you're encouraging in your relationships with other people and in your community. So we are the temple. Jesus expects fruitfulness from us. But that's not pressure at all to perform. It's an invitation to look at our hearts and say, is that, is that good? Is the stuff that's coming out of me, the stuff that I want to come out of me, is it good fruit or is it bad? And if it's bad, I just, it's a heart issue. It's not a behavior issue. Let me start with my heart and fix that. And given the right conditions we will bear fruit. So here's some the, the things that Jesus points out in Mark 11. I don't like technique-based, kind of feeling like I'm giving you a recipe, but there, there are some things in here that Jesus says, do these things, and will help cultivate a heart where good fruit uh, can be born. One, become a person of prayer. That's this whole thing about my house shall be a house of prayer. There's three types of people. There are people who don't pray. And if you're in that category, and I mean this with all respect, it's pretty silly unless you are 100% convinced that there is no God or 100% convinced that if there is a God, he doesn't care what you, he, he's not moved by prayer. If you're either a dyed-in-the-wool atheist or a dyed-in-the-wool determinist, then I get why you don't pray. But if there's even a sliver for you, you might not be following Jesus, but there, if there's even a sliver of you that thinks there could be a God or a sliver of you that thinks that if there is a God, he might answer prayer, then why in the world would you not pray? You're not out anything. The worst thing that happens is nothing. If you're in that camp, my challenge to you would be pick one thing that you want to see happen in your life and ask God. You don't have to ask, just ask once. 
pray one time, two sentences. You just remember that you prayed it. And then look and see what happens. See if this God that may or may not exist answers a prayer that you prayed. And then you can go from there. Most of us, this is where I fit, we're people who pray. We might pray five minutes a day. We might pray for two hours a day. We might pray only in emergencies. We might be very regular. We might pray long or short or eloquent or not eloquent, passionate or persistent or whatever. But prayer is something that we do. It's on our list. Good. That's better than not praying. It's not exactly what Jesus is talking about, but it is progress. And again, there's a wide range of behaviors that fit under people who pray. The common theme is it's something that I do. I pray, I check it off, and then I kind of go on with my life. And I'm, again, I might pray every day. I might pray for everything that's going to happen in my day. But then once I'm done, once I get up, I kind of just go on with my life, maybe not with a lot of awareness of God throughout the day. And I think what Jesus is saying is let's take one more step and let's become people of prayer who don't unplug. Many of you know Kim Kramer. She works here with us at Stonebridge. She's a runner. She is not a person who runs. It's part of who she is. Some of you are people who run. You might run 30 miles or 40 miles a week just as much as her. You might, uh, but for you, running, it, it's something that you do. It's the means to an end. You're running to get in shape or you're running because you're training for something. Or For her, it's part of, again, it's part of who she is. If you're around her for any length of time, she relates running to her walk with the Lord. She re- relates uh, running to how she's matured as a person, to her relationships with other people. It's, she views life as a runner. And I think that's where God is looking for us to move, not just to be people who pray and then kind of unplug and go about our life, but people who view our life through the lenses of prayer. I'm not big on the kind of 24-7 prayer move. That's fine if that's what you're doing. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think what he's talking about is remaining in him. That's again in John. We remain in him and we'll bear fruit. He's looking for people who don't disengage or unplug after they've had their quiet time. After you've had your devotional time, do you continue to go through your day with glasses that say, God is at work here? I don't most of the time. I tend to be someone who prays, not a person of prayer. I can go for long stretches where I'm not consciously aware of if God is at work or where he's at work, and sometimes I don't care because I want to do my own thing, and I'd rather not know what he's up to. That's a growth step for me, and again, I'd say for most of us in the room, we're people who we pray, but we're not people of prayer, and that's a, again, it's a subtle distinction, but it, it has to do, again, not with how much you pray or how often, but what do you do kind of when you're done with the official prayer time? Do you kind of take off those glasses, check it off the list, and move on, or do you stay connected to him? So that's prayer. The second thing we see, we want to be people of faith. He says, have faith in God. We've talked before, faith is active trust. It's not mental assent. It's not saying, I know God can do X, Y, or Z. It's actually trusting and moving out into those things. The issue for us, I think a lot of times, it's not the faith part. It's what we have faith in. Jesus says, have faith in God. A lot of us have faith in our own faith, and it creates this kind of vending machine mentality. Scott, if we can see that picture, what we do is if there's something that we want from the Lord, our first response is not to look at him, it's to look in our pocket and see how much faith we have. Jesus said if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can say this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and it will. And so what we spend a lot of time doing is trying to figure out, well, how much faith is a mustard seed? 
and do I have it? And if I do, then I can put that into the vending machine and push what I want, and God will give me whatever it is that I want. And if God doesn't, it must mean that I didn't have enough money in the first place. That's not faith in God. That's faith in faith. A, a much better picture is this one. There's a buffet spread out in front of you. So what do you want? Ask him for it. That's the, the invitation is open. You don't have to put change in the vending machine. If there was something smaller than a mustard seed, Jesus would have used that. He picked the smallest thing that was common for them and said, that's, that's all you need. It's not about a minimum amount of faith. What he's trying to say is, God is so good and so willing and so able, it doesn't take anything to get him to move. Not it takes just this little minimum, do you have it? What the point he's trying to make is, here's a huge mountain, the biggest thing that you can see. Here's a little mustard seed, the smallest thing you can see. Because God is so willing and so able and so good, that little bitty mustard seed, it can move that whole mountain. And we get hung up because we have faith in our faith or lack of faith instead of faith in God. Sometimes we have faith in results. Jesus says in, or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all God's promises are yes in Jesus. And that's a hard thing sometimes to hold on to because we want, that's great, God. All your promises are yes in Jesus. But that doesn't get me fill in the blank. And there's that tension that we live in. I can give you Abraham who waited 25 years and Anna who waited either 60 or 84, depending on how you read the Bible. And we can come up with all these reasons why your specific prayer hasn't been answered. But it doesn't make you feel better. And it's really just, it's spinning. And what I'll say to that is all of his promises are yes in Jesus. He, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of every desire that you have. And if you'll continue to stand on that. Ultimately, I want a husband. I don't. I want a husband. I want Jesus more. I want another kid. I don't want that either. I want Jesus more. <laughs> I want whatever it is that you... I want a promotion. I want Jesus more. Whatever, that, whatever your little A is, if you'll remember the capital A, is Jesus. That's what it means for all of his promises to be yes in him. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those things. And even if I don't get my little A request, if I get the capital A request, that's ultimately what I want. It, that's a hard posture to maintain over time. It's so easy to get frustrated and to lose hope, as Bo was saying, but that's ultimately where we need to get. Um, the first Sunday of every month, we specifically pray for healing, and probably, I don't know, two, two months ago, a blind guy came forward, and I was just hoping he had a headache because he was coming to me, and I said, well, what do you want prayer for? And he said, I want to see. And I start looking around. I was looking for Alio, actually. Um, I was looking for help. Let me get somebody else. He was blind. He couldn't see that I was looking around. I was trying to find somebody else to come pray for this guy. What am I going to say? And that's one of the, like, that's an, that's, you, you either walk away with your eyes open or not. He's still blind, by the way. So, I'm, the whole time that I'm kind of trying to pray for him, I'm thinking it's, my faith is not in a God who's, I know intellectually he's able to open this guy's eyes. I have no reason to think he's going to do it right now. And that's where I, and I was like, well, I, I don't know. And 
I don't know if he wants to open your eyes. I'm trying to pray. Well, do you, do you pray boldly, God, open his eyes? Or do I start praying all the reasons why it wouldn't? Do I pray that God would open his spiritual eyes instead of his physical eyes? And all of this all wrapped up. My faith was in my faith, and my faith was in results. In neither case. It was not in the Lord at all and in his goodness. I didn't have this picture of, here's a beautiful spread of food. What do you want? Let's just ask a good father to give us what we want. And maybe your eyes are open and maybe they're not. But let's ask. And if they're not, then why don't you come back next Sunday and we'll pray again. Instead, I'm looking in my pocket to see if I've got enough faith to put in the vending machine to press open the eyes of the blind right now. Or I'm looking at my past saying, well, in the past I've prayed, I've never prayed for someone whose eyes have been open, so I don't know based on results whether I can do it's wrong on all kinds of levels. If you find yourself there, my encouragement, have faith in God. He's the only one that's strong enough to stand up underneath it. And lastly, become a person of grace. We want to become a person of prayer. We want to become a person of faith. We want to become a person of grace. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says this, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The most concrete expression of grace for us, extended, is forgiveness. That's about the most concrete uh, action in terms of being gracious to others that we can perform. And Jesus ties a lot into our forgiving other people. If I don't forgive others, I'm not going to be able to receive the forgiveness that God wants to give to me. I've cut off this channel of his grace. And again, if we're talking about our hearts and that we bear fruit is what comes out of our hearts... If I'm cut off from the grace of God, then all I've got left is my flesh. And so I might, I might make something really good, but it's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of my flesh. And it might look really good on the outside, but it's leaves. It's not real fruit. I have to be open to receiving the grace of God. And according to Jesus, uh, that means I've got to be willing to forgive others. For some of you, forgiveness is no sweat. You've got it. For others, it's a very difficult reality to actually think about forgiving somebody. And Jesus says you don't just forgive them once. You forgive them 70 times 7. You forgive them every time that they come to you. That's a difficult pill for some of you to swallow, but you have to get there. There's a parable in Matthew 18. You can read it this week. The unmerciful servant. There's a guy. He owes the king a million dollars. And he goes to the, the king, calls him in, and says, pay up. Or I'm throwing you into debtor's prison. And the guy pleads for mercy. And the king says, okay, you're off the hook. And this guy, he just got let off the hook. He's walking home, and he sees a guy that owes him $1,000. And he says, pay up. And the guy says, have mercy on me. He says, no way. Throws him in jail. And the report gets back to the king. So he pulls the guy in. I forgave you. You couldn't forgive him. And he throws him in jail so he can pay back every bit. And Jesus says, that's the way our father will treat us if we don't forgive people who sinned against us. Again, that's a strong statement. For some of you, no sweat. For others, that's a difficult thing to grab onto, and but that will keep you from bearing fruit. If you're not a, if there's someone in your life who you have not been able to forgive for whatever reason, that will that lack of forgiveness will pollute the your wake. It will pollute the fruit that you bear. It's going to be tinged with bitterness. It's going to be tinged with manipulation and selfishness, and you don't want that. That's not good fruit at all. Let's pray. This is what I want you to do as you close your eyes. We'll wrap up with this.
So we've all produced fruit in the last week. Everybody has. I want you to scan back over your last week. And I want you to identify two or three instances that you would say, that's good fruit right there. It's easy for some of us to pick out the things that we've done wrong. I want you to look back and find a couple of things that you did right. Just to help you, there's, again, think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Whether that was personally or something you encouraged in others. Lord, I thank you for these instances where we've borne good fruit. Sometimes it's easy to get down on ourselves and think it's all bad. That's not the case. If your Holy Spirit lives within us, try as we might, he's going to leak out. And we want to thank you for the times when he does. When instead of reacting in our flesh, we react in the Spirit. When rather than pushing our own agenda, we choose to serve somebody else. I pray that you would encourage each of us right now. There's good fruit there. It might not be as much as we want, but there's good fruit there. And now I want you to think of one, just one instance. We're moving into the next week. Maybe you need to do better. Maybe you're thinking to last week in a place where you blew it and been moving ahead. It could be in your own attitude or in a relationship, something you're doing behaviorally. I want you to think about which of the three ingredients do you need. Is it prayer? Is it faith? Is it grace? Which of those do you think is lacking when it comes to really being a good tree that will then naturally produce good fruit? God, my prayer for each of us in this room as well is that you would continue to conform us more into the image of your Son, that our hearts would be good soil, and out of that good soil, God, good fruit would be produced. God, for some of us, it's moving in prayer, becoming people of prayer, not just people who pray. For others, it's faith, learning to trust you more actively, more regularly, putting our faith in you and not in other things. For some, it's forgiveness. It's it's not the first time. It's having to forgive the same person for the tenth time. That's what gets us. And we need your grace to forgive so that we can then be a channel of your grace to others. So whatever it is that we need, God, I pray that you would, put, you would download that into our hearts right now. And that this week, and that whatever that area was where we said we wanted to grow. Lord, I pray for good fruit instead of bad. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. You guys can stand up. Annie Kate's going to close us with a song.